If you would take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And um, I was thinking this week that if I continued in the book of Acts, which I wanted to do, we're going to get into some miracles that Peter did. But we also have communion today, so I wanted to take some time to talk about that. So I decided to go away from Acts for one week, and we're going to be in Acts, or Luke chapter 23 today. And as I was starting to study, I thought, man, I think I preached on something like this a couple years ago. And I started doing some searching, and I found uh, another message. So I want to steal some stuff from that, as well as bring in some new stuff this morning. So as I said, uh, everyone said we're predictable. We're messing you up today. So uh, Luke chapter 23. Um, the question, why did Christ have to die? Why did he have to die? You know, I'm thinking about communion, and I don't want to be one of those guys where communion is just something we do. It's on the calendar, so we've got to do it, and it's just one of those things. I think communion ought to be something special to us, where we think back of what Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary. But then when I go back and read the account of the crucifixion, I'm reminded afresh and anew that we serve an awesome, powerful God who loved us so much that he was willing to send his son to die on a cross. But it all starts with a simple process of forgiveness. And when I think about that, in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, the Bible tells us that the Son of Man will suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, and rise again the third day. And of course, the third day the tomb was what? Empty. It's because Jesus Christ went on the cross, and yes, he was killed. Yes, he was uh, in an, in an amazing amount of agony and pain and torture, and he suffered. But then he was buried, but he didn't stay in the tomb. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. The amazing thing about it is that he came that we might have forgiveness of sin. And no doubt there are many biblical reasons as to why Jesus came, uh, obviously in fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, and of course all those prophecies were being fulfilled. But today I want to just concentrate on one of those aspects, and that's his forgiveness. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In Him, that is in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, or our transgressions. And the amazing thing about that is that we, because of what Jesus Christ did, we forget about that. We come into communion and we think about the fact that He died on a cross, but do you think about the fact that He died for you? He offered His shed blood for you and for me. That's one of the main reasons that he shed his blood. Because in Hebrews it tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Remission or forgiveness of sins. And in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, it says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We have the ability. We don't have to go into a, a confessional booth and, and, and confess to some friend or some father that, uh, that, that we did something wrong or had a wrong thought or did something that was unacceptable. We, God's Word says that we have our priests in our own rights and we have the opportunity to go to the Father who is going to intercede for us and plead our case before the Father, right? And He did that because we had going to have forgiveness of sins. And in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, I love what it says here. We forget about this. And this whole passage is full of like little nuggets that we take with us. But in, in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, it says, But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments amongst themselves. You know, so he asks this, you know, this, this, or makes this statement, Father, forgive them. And, you know, I, I, for many years I thought about who's the them? 
We can generically say, well, it's all mankind. They don't know what they're doing. It's all these. But when you start reading the text over and over and over again, you get an idea that the them is a little more specific than just a nebulous bunch of people that are out there somewhere. And put yourself into the text. And I think every one of us, uh, I think if we were to be honest with ourselves this morning, every one of us in this room can put ourselves into the text and find ourselves somewhere within it. And when I get done, you're going to say, okay, I see it. But first of all, let's look at the people groups that Christ forgave. And the first one uh, is the multitude. Jesus Christ said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what to do. Part of the them is the multitude. And you see, God's Word makes it very clear what they were, who they were. Verse 1 says, Then their whole assembly rose up and brought Him before Pilate. The whole assembly. That was just the group. The group in general. You know, they led him to Pilate. They accused him of misleading and perverting the nation and forbidding them to give tribute to Caesar. And we see that right away in verse 2. It says, uh, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So, the multitude. They led him to Pilate. It was the, it was the crowd. You know, it's so easy to be just one that blends into the crowd, right? I mean, the crowd doesn't have to do anything specific. It's just whatever one, it's, you just have to do what everyone else is doing. I think sometimes we kind of just fit that scenario that we just kind of blend in. We don't want to stand out. I mean, it's not the crowd that's standing out. The crowd is kind of all together. But not only that, it says they were fiercely against him. We see that in verse 5. So in verse 5 it says, But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. So, I mean, it was just the crowd. When Jesus Christ said, Father, forgive them, the first group he's talking about is just the general crowd, the, the multitude, the assembly that were gathered around. Nobody was standing out. Nobody was doing anything in particular. It's just the group that all blended in together as one big lump. And so often, that's our culture. Just one big group. All of them kind of doing what's wrong, doing what's right in their own mind, just kind of blending in. Nobody's standing out, just the crowd. And God says, or Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Well, then we come to another person that I believe is part of the them. And that's found in verse 4. And in verse 4, it says this, Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. So the second one is Pilate. You know, it's amazing to think that Pilate says, I don't find anything wrong with him. And yet they wanted to bring him to Pilate so that they could take up the whims of the crowd, right? And Pilate stands there and goes, I don't find anything wrong with him. In fact, in verse 7, it says this, And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem in those days. Pilate wanted nothing to do with it. He goes, listen, I don't find anything wrong with him. Hey, oh, he's from Herod's group? Send him over to Herod. Let Herod deal with him a little bit. I don't want to deal with it. Once again, not like the, not so much different from the crowd, but he didn't want to deal with it, so he just you know, let somebody else deal with him. You know, obviously the chief priests and the scribes and all them, they didn't want anything to do with them, but neither did he. In fact, we find a little bit more. He found no guilt in this man. He sends him back to Herod. But the worst thing about Pilate is that he just gives in to what the crowd wants. And we find this beginning down in verse 16. Look at verse 16 with me. 
It says, therefore, I will punish him and release him. I mean, I don't find anything wrong with him. I find no guilt in the man, but I'm going to punish him and then let him go. Verse 16. Makes sense, right? No. Look at verse 17. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast of one prisoner. Well, tradition says that every year as we come into this feast, I have to let somebody go. I don't find any fault with him, but let's beat him and release him. Yeah, crowd had a different idea. Verse 18, but they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. Now what's wrong with this picture? Barabbas was a known criminal. Barabbas had a reason to be beaten. Barabbas had a reason to be in legal difficulty. Jesus didn't. But release unto us Barabbas. Is that really so much different than our day that we live in? Calling right, wrong, and wrong, right, and let's punish those who are doing good? Yeah, it kind of fits like what's going on. Look at verse 19. He had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city for murder. That's Barabbas. But again, Pilate addressed them, wanting to release Jesus, but they kept calling out, saying, Crucify! Crucify Him! And he said to them a third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found him in him no guilt worthy of death, therefore I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent, with loud voices, asking that he be crucified, and their voices were prevailing. I mean, it's almost like they're getting louder and louder and louder, saying that they wanted this man Barabbas to be released, but the man who'd done nothing? Well, we're going to keep him. Because that's what the crowd wanted. And then verse 24, the Pilate, then, and Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. So you got the multitude who is just kind of swaying with whatever, whatever they wanted. you got Pilate who finds no guilt in him, but gives in to the public opinion and the swaying of, of the crowd, and he gives in to the crowd. But then you have this other guy that was mentioned. Part of the them that Jesus said forgive. And that was Herod. And you find you see things about Herod in verse 8. It says, now when Herod saw Jesus, he rejoiced greatly. I mean, if you were to stop right there and say, well, Jesus rejoiced greatly, you'd say, well, he's almost excited to see Jesus, right? I mean, doesn't that what it sounds like at first? He's excited to see Jesus. Well, wait a minute. For he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. I mean, was it really that he wanted to see Jesus? No. I mean, the word had gotten out. I mean, Jesus wasn't not, well, he was not a unique man, was he? He wasn't just your run-of-the-mill you know, guy who's out there as a preacher or a teacher or some spiritual man. I mean, Jesus was unique. He performed miracles. And Herod's like, oh, get this guy in here. Maybe I can watch him do a miracle. How cool would that be? I mean, Jesus is here. We want to see him do something, right? What a false piety. What a false way to say that I want to see Jesus do something. Only because it was a spectacle to him. He really didn't want to see Jesus. He just wanted to see Jesus do something. He's hoping for a miracle, a sign. He was hoping to be entertained. I mean, Jesus was nothing more than a spectacle to entertain me. And unfortunately, that's the way Jesus and what spirituality is to a lot of people who claim to know Jesus. It's spiritual entertainment. I'm going to go to a concert. I'm going to be tickled a little bit. I'm going to be challenged. I'm going to hear some great voices, some good songs. And to a lot of people, it is nothing more than entertainment. 
A walk with Jesus and a real relationship? Well, that's something else. That requires work. That requires sacrifice. That requires commitment. But to go to a concert and get some spirituality out of it? Well, that's just a little bit different. And you'll find out that Herod really, in his heart, didn't want anything more than that. How do I know that? Look at verse 11. It says, And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a bright robe and sent him back to Pilate. Thanks, Pilate. Pilate didn't want anything to do with him. He's in Herod's jurisdiction. They sent him over to Herod. Herod didn't get to see the miracles he wanted to see, so he goes, listen, I don't want to do it with him either. He sent him back to Pilate. You know, he found no guilt in him either. How do I know that? Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says this. It says, And he said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found in this man no guilt of what you are accusing him. I mean, so he couldn't even find what, what, what was being accused of him either. Pilate couldn't find anything wrong with him. Herod couldn't find anything wrong with him. But nonetheless, we're going to send him back. And you know, after we mock him, after we scorn him a little bit, how many of us in this room, if we're being honest with ourselves, if somebody falsely accused us, of anything, wouldn't go to fight for ourselves. I'm going to prove my innocence. I'm going to prove that what you're saying is wrong. I'm going to let you know that I'm ticked off because you're implying these things that aren't right. And we let our whole flesh get all wrapped up in it because ain't nobody going to talk about me that way. Right? And yet, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they... Do. But then there's another group that I think is part of the them. Look at verse 10. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there, vehemently accusing him. I mean, what's the word vehemently mean? I mean, most of your translations say vehemently or something similar to that. I mean, they were not letting this guy up for anything. I mean, they were accusing him. I mean, he claims to be the Christ. He claims to be God. He claims to be the King. And all they could do is look not at who He was, but what, who they thought He was not. And yet, even the chief priests, who you would think in our mindsets were somewhat spiritual, right? I mean, these are priests. They're scribes. Those that copy the Scriptures. Those that know the law. In our day and age, they'd be the ones that had studied. They'd gone to seminary. They, they were Bible teachers. They were the ones that you would expect to know something about the Bible, maybe, right? In our day and age. You would think that they would be, quote-unquote, godly. No. They were selfish, if anything. But then we see another one, beginning in verse 36. Says, and the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine. Can you imagine this just for a moment? Father, forgive them. Who? The soldiers. Can you imagine Jesus being thirsty? In fact, isn't that one of the seven sayings of the cross? He said, I thirst. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm thirsty, I don't want sour wine. I don't want something that's not going to satisfy and quench my thirst. But that's exactly what they offered him. Sour wine. 
In fact, we see in verse 37, it says, And saying, if, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They questioned his very deity. They questioned the very fact that he said he was God, and he, they said, I don't believe it. You make this claim, but no, it's not real. And yet, even though they questioned him and would not believe who he was, the reality is, he said, still, Father, forgive these men who don't trust me. Father, forgive these men who don't know that I am God, the Son. Father, forgive these men who don't believe that I am God in the flesh. For they don't know what they're doing. Isn't that amazing? We have a hard time forgiving other people. Anyone else? No, they said this. They did this. I'm going to hold it against them. And man, I, I've talked to people who have held grudges for 25 years. Several years ago, I had a family in my, in my office downstairs... And they were holding a grudge against someone who had died 25 years earlier. It's not taking any space in their brain, but it's certainly taking up space in your brain. Let it go. But we forget that God says, if you don't forgive your enemies, if you don't forgive those who have ought against you, He says, neither will your Father in Heaven forgive you. We are commanded to forgive. And here Jesus is exemplifying the, very, the principle of forgiving those who have done wrong against Him. All these people groups have done something majorly against Jesus. And yet he's saying, Father, forgive them, including the soldiers who nailed them there. Then verse 39, we see even another group. Verse 39 says, And one of the criminals hanging there was blaspheming him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Think about that. I mean, that guy was getting everything that he deserved. Would anybody disagree with that? And yet he goes, yeah, I know the soldiers are mocking you, but so is the thief hanging on the cross. And this guy is saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These guys are blaspheming us. What the other, one, the other thief said, yeah, this guy, we're getting what, our, what we deserve. This guy, no, he doesn't deserve this. And yet there Jesus was forgiving them. And then there's one more. Out of these seven groups, there's one more. Simon the Cyrenian and others, that last group. Look at verse 26. It says, And when they led him away, they took hold of a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. What's really cool about Simon is that he was, even though he may not have immediately volunteered to carry the cross, that's exactly what he did. And in verse 27 it says, And following him was a large multitude of, of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting him. There was Simon, the Cyrenian, who was carrying the cross for Jesus. The very cross that he would be laid down upon. The very cross that he would be nailed to. And others who followed behind him lamenting and crying and weeping over what was happening to Jesus. And in every one of those groups... From the multitude, to Pilate, to Herod, to the chief priests and scribes, to the soldiers, to the criminals, to Simon. Every one of them, Jesus said what? Father, forgive them. And from Ephesians 1.7, he says that's why he came. To offer forgiveness to those that need it, whether they realize it or not. And there's so many people that need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and they don't even know it, that they need it. 
Think about that for a minute. Does a baby know what's best for them? At three months, six months, eight months, year, 17 years old? No, again. Do they always know what they need? No. These people didn't even know they needed it. They're just being themselves. And Jesus was coming to give them what they needed. There's a contrast in Christ's attitude before and after the cross. Before the cross, look at verse 28 through 31. It says, But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop crying for me, but cry for yourselves and for your children. That's powerful to me. <laughs> he goes, You guys are crying for me? Stop! Think about that. If all the things that are going on in the life of Jesus at this very moment, everything that was happening to him, he said, Stop crying for me. That's unfathomable. And he says, Cry for yourselves and for your children. Think about that. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say, The mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Isn't that amazing? Blows my mind. He says, Don't weep for me. Don't cry over me. You better start weeping for yourself if you knew what was coming. That was before the cross. And on the cross, look at verse 34. But Jesus was saying now He's been nailed to the cross. And in verse 34 it says, But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up His garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were scoffing at Him, saying, He saved others. Let Him save Himself if this is Christ of God, the Chosen One. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming of him, offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. On the cross, don't weep for me. Or before the cross, don't weep for me. But on the cross, Father, forgive them. Now think about this. Just consider these couple of things. Number one, he'd already been beaten and worn ragged from the trip to Golgotha. Just think about just the trip up to Golgotha. Beaten, worn out, exhausted. Just beginning to feel the physical pains of the crucifixion. Just had spikes driven through his hands and feet. Just gone through an agonizing night of prayer in Gethsemane. And yet the pains of the past nor the pain of the present could keep him from praying to his Father regarding those who were hurting him. He is praying for those who were hurting him. Spurgeon said he was silent to men, but he was not silent to God. What an example. What was his Lord's prayer like? I think for a moment, his prayer was agonizing. History tells us that with every breath he had to lift himself up he is pushing upon those spikes that were in his feet and his hands to gain the breath to even pray. That prayer was an agonizing prayer. This prayer was not for himself. 
How often is our prayers about me, myself, and I? What I want, what I think, what I feel, what I deserve, what I'm asking God to do, it all always, most often revolves around myself. But Jesus' prayer was not for himself. It was for his enemies. And not only was it for his enemies, it was on our behalf that he was praying. And it was not a prayer for what they wanted. It was a prayer for what they needed. It wasn't for his pain. It wasn't for all those that had did something wicked or heinously against him. It wasn't for the hurt that he was going through. And those of us that are here today, Jesus Christ died that we might have forgiveness. He died and shed his blood that we might have forgiveness. Think about that. Not that we can have a better income, though he blesses us. Not that we can have a nicer home or drive a fancier car, though God is gracious to give us things that we don't deserve. Not that so we can have beautiful health and families and great health, though he does that. He really came and shed his blood that we might have forgiveness of sins. And you have to know, His blood is sufficient for every one of our sins. There's not one person that is here today that can say, well, I just have too many sins that Jesus can't forgive those. No, He can. And is willing. Now, here's where I said in the beginning that every one of us should be able to see ourselves in the crowd. Every one of us, and sitting here in this auditorium, myself included, two hands and a foot, every one of us ought to be able to see ourselves somewhere in the them that He forgave. Let me give you a little recap. Number one, the multitude. Just think about this. No one has to stand out in the multitude. You can just blend into the crowd. And just do what everyone else does. Maybe that's you this morning. You've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ because you're too busy just blending in. I'm here. I can look the part. I don't have to stand out. I don't have to be anybody in particular. I don't have to be anybody that stands out in front of anyone else. I'm just here. I'm blending in with everyone else. Maybe you're part of the crowd this morning, but can I challenge you? Step out of the crowd and put your trust in Jesus. Accept His forgiveness. Number two, maybe some of you are like Pilate. Easily swayed by what everyone else thinks. Just do what everyone else does. They'll be happier that way. You don't have to have any confrontation. Just do what the crowd tells you to do and you'll be okay. I think oftentimes we have pilots in our church services. Just do whatever the crowd wants. The crowd wants blue carpet? Yeah, just do what the crowd wants. I'll give them what they want. Oh, do away with prayer because that takes too long. Just do what the crowd wants. Too many pilots. I don't see anything wrong with it, but I'm not going to stand up for what I know is right either. Maybe we got some Herods in here. And like Herod, you still see nothing wrong with Christ, but He's not for you. I didn't get to see a miracle. I didn't get to see any speculation of, of, of entertainment, so I'm just going to you know, kind of mock Him and send Him back. I think sometimes Herods creep in too. Don't want to take that stand. 
but neither do I want to stand up for him either. Maybe some of you are like chief priests and scribes. Spiritual? Yeah, religious at least. But jealous and proud and sin-filled. That's exactly the description of the chief priests and scribes. Proud, arrogant, selfish. They knew the law. They knew the Bible, so to speak. But yet, didn't like Jesus so much. Then there's the soldiers. What is it said that they did? They scoffed at Jesus. They mocked Him. Maybe you ridicule and mock and make jokes about Christianity or God specifically in general. But not at church though, of course, because at church you don't do that. But when you're around certain groups of people, you just kind of blend in and if they're joking about Christianity or joking about Christian people, then you just kind of join in and laugh just like everyone else. I hope that's not the case. Then there's the thief on the cross. You question who God says He really is. And can I just say, some of us fit that category right here. You question God. Well, that's not God. God didn't really say that, did He? God didn't really imply that. God wouldn't really have us to believe that, right? Come on, God would never do that. I had someone tell me in this church a few years ago, my God would never tell me to hate father or mother or sister or brother. No, but what he's saying, you ought to love me so much that it would almost appear that you hate your father and mother because you love me that much more. Oh, Jesus would never say that. Read your Bible. And can I say, some of us are like those soldiers. You ridicule and you mock. And like that thief who questioned who God really is. Did God really say that? Yes. Did God really do that? Yes. Did God really imply that? Yes. But we have a hard time accepting it. Because that means I've got to change. That means I've got to be more committed. That means I need to surrender in some areas. And I just don't want to do that yet. And thankfully, praise God, I think there are some Simons in here who though he may not have said, hey, let me carry the cross, he definitely was willing when it was put upon him. And the others who followed lamented and and mourned over what Jesus was going through. And I do believe in this crowd there are those who would fit that group as well. You love Jesus. You know who Jesus is. Jesus has changed your life. And you would gladly bear the cross for him. And you walk behind Him weeping when other people make fun of Him. Because you love Him that much. Maybe you're a Simon. Or those that followed with Him. What person or people group do you find yourself relating to? Because I think every one of us can fit into one of those categories. Or maybe a couple of those categories. And get both feet up now. <laughs> I think a lot of us can fit into a lot of those categories, right? What category do you want to be in? I want to be in that Simon category. I want to be like those that follow behind weeping. Don't, don't make fun of my God. Don't ridicule my Jesus. I take it serious. 
there is one other person you could be like. If you're visiting here today, you may recall that there were two thieves on the cross. Remember that? Well, one of the thieves mocked Christ. The other said, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And what was his response? He says, truly I say to you that today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you can receive Christ's forgiveness and trust him to be your savior. If you're not in that Simon group, if you're not in those that followed with Simon, lamenting and, and, and weeping over what was happening to Jesus, you can be. By confessing our sins before him and saying, God, save me. You see, I think this is just me. Maybe you can relate, and I'm not going to imply anything. I'm just going to speak truth for a minute. I think too many of us have gotten to the place where we take our faith in Jesus Christ and our walk with Jesus flippantly. There was a time when it just really excited us. But not so much anymore. There was a time when we used to read our Bible more, but eh, things are busy now. God understands. There was a time maybe that you were praying and spending your days starting out in prayer and you got up a few minutes earlier just so you could take a few minutes and say, God, help me today because I can't do this without you, but not so much anymore because you got busy and you're tired. It's not a priority anymore. I think maybe for many of us, we have gotten to the point where it's just not as important as it used to be. And I think that's where we need to step forward and say, God, I need your forgiveness. I confess my walk with you is not what it should be. God, I confess to you. I repent. Things need to change. God, I can't do this without you. God, I want you to be there for me in this moment of confession. And what does God's word say? If you confess your sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive you. That's the reason he came. I'm thankful that God is a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, 27, 300,000 second chances. Now let me say with that, he reminds us several times in the book of Romans alone, should I basically abuse his grace because I know he's going to forgive us? No. We know that he is a gracious God. Don't abuse the grace, but walk in forgiveness. And say, God, I need your help. I don't know how all of us in this room can't fit ourselves into one or two or three or four categories. I don't know. Because that's the world we live in. And if we're not careful, if we don't plan to work and protect our relationship with Jesus, something else will get our attention, our time, our focus, and our energy. Right? Let's be honest. Something else will get our time, attention, energy, folks, if we don't plan to make it a priority. And as we think about coming into communion, we are celebrating what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Don't ever let that become old news. Don't ever take that for granted. That God loves us so much that He sent His Son to die on the cross. One more thing for free. See, I'm here this morning, so I believe in Jesus. Wonderful. So do the devils. 
That's what God's Word says. You say, well, isn't it enough just to believe? No, it's not. I'm just going to be blunt about it. Because he said, even the devil believes and trembles. My Bible tells me in, in Romans, it says, for with the heart one believes, but with the mouth confession is made. I am willing to stand up and say, God, I believe that you died on the cross for me. You sent your son Jesus to give his life, to shed his blood, that I might have forgiveness of sins. Then, Lord, I ask you to forgive me of my sins, and I put my faith and trust in you and you alone to save me. That's salvation. That's a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. It's a little bit beyond just saying, well, I believe he's there. I'm putting feet to it. I'm going to actually pray. He says, with the heart one believes, but with the mouth confession is made. And I ask you this question. Has there been a time where you say, Lord Jesus, with my mouth, God, I'm praying to you. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins. I'm asking you to cleanse my heart. And dear Jesus, I'm asking you to save me. I put my trust in you alone. That's when it starts. And it's just a starting point. Some people will put it in an experience. Well, I had this experience. Experiences nowhere in Scripture will save you. Show me one verse and I'll say, I'm sorry, I've read that, misread that. Your experiences will not save you. Your gifts to God will not save you. Regardless of what they are. Billions of dollars to do good things will not save you. Being nice, kind to others, will not save you. I, I didn't make it up. That's what God's Word says. So the only difference is to say, Lord, I can't save myself. So therefore, I'm asking you to save me. I'm confessing my sins to you, asking for your forgiveness, and I'm putting my faith and trust in you alone. I want a relationship with you. And if you've done that, how's the commitment going? How's the surrender to Jesus Christ daily going? How is the dying to self going? Because those are real issues. And if we're not careful, our selfishness will prevail. And we can justify it, rationalize it, excuse it away because we're good people with good intentions. And good intentions don't get you any further closer to Jesus. So just in a moment, we're going to pray, and then we're going to go into communion, then we're going to end our service with worship today. But just for a moment, if you don't know Jesus... Can I challenge you to put your trust in Him alone? To accept His forgiveness? So, say, well, Pastor, I don't know how to do that. It's a simple prayer of faith. I admit that I'm a sinner, but I believe that Christ died on the cross. He shed His blood. God, I ask You to forgive me of my sins. Cleanse my heart. And I put my faith and trust in You alone. And help me to live for You. That's it. And then we begin to grow in our walk daily. We begin to read the Bible, we begin to pray, and God begins to show us what it means to walk with Him. That's the exciting part. This is not a boring book. This is an exciting book. If you'll read it and apply it and meditate upon it. 
going to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment this morning. Dear Father, as we come before you with our hearts bowed before you, Lord, we don't want to just do church. We don't want to just show up because that's what we do on Sundays. Lord, we want to know you and to know everything about you, to draw close to you, to spend time under the, in the shadow of the Almighty, to, Lord, be nestled underneath your wings of love. Lord, we want to be so close to you, Lord, that we know your heart and know your mind. And we're talking with you daily and walking with you daily and daily committing our lives to surrender and commitment and obedience, obedience to you, Father. Lord, I pray that you'd help us. Because, Lord, many of us in this room are like the multitude. We just kind of blend in, not standing out, not just kind of doing whatever the crowd's doing. But, Lord, you've called us to take a stand. You've called us to be a Simon and those that will really draw close to you and love you. Lord, there's some pilots who don't see anything wrong with you, but we don't really want to get close either. Some Herods hoping to see a miracle, some entertainment, so to speak, from Christian venues. Enjoy the concerts. Enjoy the singing. Enjoy the worship even. But yet, personal relationship? Nah. Lord, soldiers that even mock and scoff. Chief priests, religious. Yet lost. The thief, question who God is. And then the Simons. Lord, I pray you help us to be honest this morning. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Just a couple of questions as no one is looking around, please. Say, Pastor, I see myself in some of those groups this morning. And some things aren't right. Some things need to change. Would you pray for me? Yes. 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 In the front and inside in the middle. Yes. All over. And I'll say, Pastor, pray for me. There's some things that ain't that aren't right, some things that need to change. Yes, in the front, the side. Can I challenge some of you? Do you know Jesus? That's where it starts. To simply say, I want to know Jesus. I am not sure that I know him. I simply am just not sure. Folks, I just want you to know, I'm never going to embarrass you. I'm never going to call you out. I'm not going to pinpoint you, but... Would you just simply say by uplifted hand, by looking at me, getting, your, getting get my attention, just, just give me a nod. Say, Pastor, I'm not sure if I'm saved, but I'm concerned. Would you pray for me? You know, like that. Do you know Jesus? That's where it starts. It starts by knowing Him. Say, Pastor, I'm not sure, but I'm concerned. Would you Would you just look at me so I can pray for you? And the last question then is this. Are you in the group of Simon or the other six? Do you want to draw close to him? And it bothers you when other people make fun of Jesus. You're willing to take the cross. You want to be in that group. Can I just challenge all of us that are here this morning? If you see yourself in one of those six groups and you want to be in the seventh, take a moment and say, God, help me. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse my heart. And God says when we repent, when we confess of our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
claim that promise today as you confess your sins before him. Just take a moment and say, God, forgive me. Cleanse my heart. And if you're not sure if there's sin in your life, Praise the psalmist. Pray, Lord, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. God, reveal it to me if there's anything that's not right. Oh, friend, I, I want to see God bring a revival in our midst. I want to see God do a work that only He can do. Just take a moment and pray and then we'll be done. We'll get into communion. Lord Jesus, you know our hearts. Lord, many of us can see ourselves in one of those seven groups. Little nuances of each characteristic of group, Lord, that we see in ourselves at times. God, forgive us. Cleanse our hearts. Help us to be honest, Father. If our life is not what it ought to be, God, might we be willing to repent and confess and draw on you, Lord, to help us. Because we can't do it apart from you. Except the Spirit of God be in us, Lord. We will have no victory. God, we need you. We need your Spirit to be at work within us. And God, I pray for each one who raised their hand, their heart towards you this morning. God, that they might sense your presence. That they may, Lord, walk in victory this week. I pray, God, that you alone... Lord, would be important to us enough to make changes, Lord, where necessary with your help. So God, speak to our hearts. And we'll praise you for what you alone are going to do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.